Welcome to the Central City Podcast. I'm Joe Graves, uh, pastor at Central City Church, and uh, excited to have you with us. Um, we're changing a few things on our podcast, so I wanted to let you know that. Um, we've started sharing our testimonies, our faith stories, every week in church, and we've decided to include these as part of our podcast so that you can hear um, real people talk about uh, their relationship with God in real ways. So at the beginning of the podcast, you'll hear a brief story, about four or five minutes, and then after that, we'll get into the sermon for the week and uh, whatever series we're in. So thanks for listening, and we hope that God meets you during this time. Yeah, this is a, a little different for me. I'm usually the one controlling the limelight for someone else. Uh, so good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Tim Smith. Like Joe said, I'm usually back there, which is why if you haven't seen my face before. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about kind of how I came to Central City, um, my experience with attending church in general. So as a kid, I grew up, um, we kind of labeled ourselves a Christian household. We went to church but it wasn't real often, and it never really connected with me. Um, usually when we went, it was some life event, like sister being baptized, communion, things like that, and it never really was something that was engaging to me. Uh, we went to a very traditional service, um, hymnals and reading from the King James. The theme always tended to be hellfire and brimstone. Not real interesting for a kid at like eight or nine years old. Uh, so really didn't connect. Uh, it was not real often that we went. And so as I trans transitioned into like middle and high school, it became even more of something that I really didn't do. Um, we still kind of had a Sunday school with our grandma where we watched uh, Murray, if anybody's familiar with the televised services from Murray. Uh, we would read a little bit of scripture, but it never really connected with me. It really n never really felt like something that was something I was a part of or a choice of my own. It felt more like a chore or something that I just had to do. So as I got into high school and into college, I just kind of abandoned it completely. When I got to college, I didn't go to chapel. I just felt like, you know, hey, if I wasn't doing it in middle school and high school, I don't really need to do it here. I can live just fine without it. And I'm very fortunate that I had uh, a now dear friend of mine that went through a very similar experience, and he said, hey, I don't want to say you're headed down a wrong path, but you're headed down a really wrong path. He's like, I did a lot of the same stuff, did a lot of the, you know, made a lot of the, the choices you made. You should come and check this group out. Uh, little did I know at the time, uh, the group made a very large impact in my life. That group was Sigma Theta Epsilon. Uh, they're a very small uh, Christian fraternity at Ohio Northern University. There's like three chapters in the world as of like four years ago, so I'm not sure how they're doing. Um, but it was the first time that like a church community connected with me. We, we always had a, a Monday evening fellowship. We'd read scripture, talk about the events that we're going to do. Uh, we would do things like canned food drives around to the different dorms uh, for the local Ada Food Bank. Um, we would you know, get together on a Friday evening and play video games till two in the morning and just hang out. And it was the first time that something like that has connected with me. And I stuck with it through all four years. Uh, I forget at one point I held an office in it and I don't remember. Um, but that was the first time I was like, okay, 
this might actually be for me. I just need to find what connects, what feels like my choice, feels like the kind of community that I want to be a part of. So as I graduated, um, we kind of floated around for a while. We didn't have a home church. Um, we tried Cyprus for a while because I was working at COSI at the time, Sunday through Thursday, so I couldn't come to most Sunday morning services. Um, so we tried Cyprus for their Sunday evening. Uh, we tried a couple others that I don't remember, and they just didn't really connect. They didn't feel personal enough. They didn't feel like the kind of environment that I wanted to be in. So some friends of ours that also graduated from Ohio Northern, uh, Andy Burns and Lauren Burns, if anybody knows them, uh, said, hey, you and Kara should check out this church that is starting in Grandview. I was like, yeah, okay, I've got my birthday off. We'll go check it out. Coincidentally, the first service for Central City was also my birthday and also, I believe, Finn's birthday. So uh, we can, what's that? It is. So we came to that service, and that was really, really good for me. It was like, it felt like the community that I wanted to be a part of. It finally felt like a choice that was my own, something that I wanted to be a part of, something that I wanted to help grow and invest myself into, and not something that was, you know, a chore, a choice made for me. And so I've really enjoyed my time here. You know, I'm doing the tech team stuff, which is great. Um, I'm slowly learning that. Uh, I probably grew up with undiagnosed ADHD, and so a lot of my attention span is uh, following the dopamine trail. Uh, so having the, the video stuff to run, having the lighting stuff to work on, working with folks with the, the audio, it, it gives me something to engage with and put my attention into while being able to listen to Joe. Uh, I also really appreciate listening to Joe because he has a lot of energy about things that you know connect with me, help me keep my intention span. So I'm really thankful for Central City and really happy to have found it. I'm still very much walking, feeling new and kind of young to this idea of having a church and what that means and the community that's involved. And so I'm really glad that I have this community here to walk that with me. Thank you. Holy Spirit, we trust that you are present here with us. That your holiness um, is here, able to set us apart, to transform us, to heal us, to make us into people that you've called us to be, to make us whole. Holy Spirit, we need you now. I ask that you take the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts and make them pleasing to you. Help us to meet you wherever we are. Help us to lay down those uh, walls that we've put up and the fear that we have and the confusion that we leave unanswered. Just help us to lay those down and be able to come to you open-handed, willing to receive whatever it is you have to say to us today. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a series on food, and uh, snacks were provided today. I don't know if you got that. We will be getting to the snacks later. Um, that's probably an appropriate way to say it, depending on your tradition. But uh, there are community elements in the back if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about food, and we're going to end by eating. And we're, uh, hopefully uh, we can tie all this together. But um, uh, before we get into it, I do want to let you know that one of the... Uh, 
sources that I've been really pulling from in this series is a book that I was forced to read in seminary that I actually surprisingly enjoyed. It's called Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating. Now, anytime a theologian, uh, you know, a seminary professor assigns a book like this, you're like, what is my, why am I paying for this education? Like, who in the world, why would I want to read a book on theology of eating? Anyone else think, you know, like, yeah, that we should do a whole series on food? I, I went in very skeptical, and I started reading this. I said, you know what? So much of our faith has to do with food. It's a crucible that holds so much of our meaning. We began to unpack all the food laws in the Old Testament last week. We're going to talk about animal sacrifices today, so that'll be fun. And uh, we're going to talk about, in two weeks, on the other side of Community Sunday, we're going to talk about the Passover and communion, which is one of the most significant you know, things we do in worship. And it's food, and it holds so much meaning and so much theology in our faith. So food plays in it. We are a food-based faith. Um, and... Uh, um, so I want to reference this book. I'm actually pulling from it quite a bit. I, I won't be quoting it directly, but the, the ideas come from this book in a lot of ways. So given that in mind, I want, I want to start with a very simple story. You know the story. Um, many of you learned it in Sunday school. Maybe you've heard it from other places. The story of Noah and the ark. How many know this story? You're fairly familiar with Noah's story of the ark. Uh, I'll give you the Joe ab- abridged version. Um, very early in the Old Testament, yeah, right, right at the beginning, really. In the first couple of chapters, humanity becomes broken, and uh, God decides is uh, just uh, can't be repaired. They go too far. They cross too many lines, and God wants to restart. This is how the story goes. I'll tell you that probably most people in our community view this more as a metaphor than, than a historical event, but the, you know, other Christians view this as a historical event. Either way, the theology of it is consistent. So regardless of how you view it, but, but uh, God says that the, the people have gone too far. We need a, a fresh start. And so this is how God's going to do a fresh start. God has all of the animals, two of every kind, and like seven of the domesticated ones are what they called clean animals. And they're all going to get on a boat that this guy Noah builds. And you can go and see a replica of this uh, down south if you want to. I've heard some people say it's pretty impressive and other people say that it's not worth going to. But once again, we all have different perspectives on this story. So I'm just saying, you can see, you know, it's, it's built to size. And all all of these animals go onto the ark, don't get into the science of how this actually works and how did dinosaurs, dinosaurs on the ark and then, you know, they were baby dinosaurs or still in the, we're not going to get into that, but all these animals get onto the ark and uh, two for two of every kind so they can mate and populate going forward and then seven of these domesticated ones, which are ones that they typically eat or use for resources and they get on the ark and they, they then spend 40 days Onto like I close, close to 100 days living on this boat. And during the time it rains, the whole world floods, and every other living creature is destroyed, wiped out, dead. And so on this boat is all of the future of humanity. Every living creature contained in one little zoo. And if, they're ever gonna, if there's ever any hope for the future of the world, it's in this little ark. Every animal that lives today, every, all of creation essentially represented on this boat, and Noah and his family have to take care of them. Some rabbi traditions around this story suggest that uh, um, Noah was so busy taking care of the animals on the ark that he never slept once the entire time. 
now I'm, I don't think that's possible, but these are stories told before things were possible, were relevant. And uh, the point is, is that so much work went into the caring for these animals, if you can imagine. And then finally the earth dries up and the boat hits a sandbar and stops and they open the doors and eventually everything's dry and they let all the animals leave. After spending days and days and nights keeping all of these animals alive, what's the first thing Noah does? Anyone know? Anyone remember? This part's usually not included in the children's version. He builds an altar and he takes some of the clean animals, the sort of domesticated ones, the ones that they would eat, the ones that they would provide wool and you know the, the animals that they use for resources, and they builds an altar, he lights a fire, and he offers a number of these animals to God. And I was thinking about this. What would that have been like? You just spent night and day keeping these animals alive to do what? To kill it as a sacrifice. I want you to hold on to that story. We're going to come back to the story of Noah and the ark and that one of the, really one of the first animal sacrifices that we see in the Bible. There's some that occur earlier, but we're, we're not going to get into that. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about animal sacrifices out of the book of Leviticus. So Noah kills an animal. He offers it on the, on the altar. Um, but later, much, much later, uh, people of Israel on their way into the promised land, we talked about this last week, they get the law. And one of the laws is the book of Leviticus, and it's the rule book for the Levites who are the priests. And so these are all the instructions for priests. And we talked last week about they had instructions of what animals they could eat and what animals they couldn't eat. And we, we kind of unpacked that a little bit. Now we're going to look at some instructions in regards to animal sacrifices. And uh, we're going to look at really kind of these uh, sacrifices, both animal and uh, plant sacrifices, offerings to God, uh, kind of fall into two camps. And um, uh, it's a slightly more complicated than that, but for a Sunday sermon, we're just going to say they generally fall into two camps, okay? I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of everything that's going on in Leviticus. Um, if, if, you've, if you've read it, it's a, it's a, it's a hard book to read. Um, it's, it's literally how the sausage is made uh, for the Levites. A lot of the books around animal sacrifices is just butchery instructions, like how to cut the animal. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. It's, it's how the, not pork sausage, but it's how the sausage is made, and, and they're engaged in these animal sacrifices. And they fall into two categories. One, this category known as the sin or guilt offering. And two a category known as the fellowship, peace, thanksgiving offering. All right, so we're going to look at those and see what they have to say to us, and then we'll dig into this some more. So the first one is the sin or guilt offering, um, and uh, here's, here's kind of where it says a little bit about it. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, When anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any of them. He goes on and says, you have to do this sacrifice. And you can read it, and it lays out how to kill the animal and what to do with the hide and how the priest gets to keep the skin, by the way. Fun fact. Um, you know, just a variety of things that you have to do. And then with this, the priest can eat the meat because not all of it's burned unless all of it is burned, and it's a burnt offering, and it's all of these rules. But this is the part I want to focus on. It's an offering related to sin. In the Greek, much later, um, sin is defined as missing the mark. There's an intention. We're supposed to do something. We're supposed to live a certain way, and we've fallen short of it. 
we've missed the mark. We've all missed the mark. Um, Spoiler alert, if you thought you hadn't, but you have. We've all sinned. And what I find most interesting about this guilt and sin offering in Leviticus, the thing I want to focus on this morning is seven different times when it's talking about the sin or guilt offering, it uses the word, even if you did it unintentionally. Leviticus 4, 27, 28 says like this. If anyone of the ordinary people, that's me, technically, I don't know how ordinary I am, but like this is us. We're not Levites. So any of the ordinary people among you sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and incurs guilt. So when we do what we shouldn't do, we incur guilt. And when that sin that you have committed is made known to you. I'll stop right there. I was thinking about this. My greatest fear in life, I'm going to be honest with you, friends. My greatest fear in life is hurting people unintentionally. Doing something wrong, and I didn't know it was wrong. Now, one of the reasons why this is my greatest fear is because I've lived most of my life on the autism spectrum. I'm what they might call highly functioning, but that's up for debate. You can talk to Alyssa about that. And, um, and, and so because of that, I say and do things that I don't always think through. Um, and, and now I've gotten to the habit that if we become friends, and now I'm telling all of you this, so this is, if we hang out enough, I'm probably going to say something that, that offends you. It, we probably all do that, but, I, but people on the autism spectrum tend to do that at a, at a higher rate. And I've done this. I've said and done things, and I didn't know. And that's the thing that made me the most angry with God. I was like, God, it's one thing for me to know something's wrong and then go do it. And be like, yeah, that was wrong, and I'm responsible for it. But the idea that I would do something wrong and I would hurt people, there's a couple of very pivotal stories that I've shared in other times and other settings where I would hurt people in very deep ways, and I wasn't, I wasn't thinking. I didn't know. And I, I'd be so angry at God. Well, why? Why, God, would you let me hurt people without doing it intentionally? And I read this, and it kept talking about even if you sin unintentionally. So I'm here to tell you there's probably someone in here who needs to hear this. Whatever guilt you're carrying around with you right now, that thing that you regret, you might not have known, you might not have done it on purpose. You might not have known, okay? I'm just, you know what? You, it's okay. You, you, it might have been unintentional. And I love that this is like the, one of the oldest, you know, in the Old Testament is known for being mean and for being judgmental. And this goes all the way, this is thousands of years old. And they made room for the concept that, you know what, we might hurt each other and not mean to. Boy, we could use a little bit more room for that today, don't you think? Oh, I, just every time somebody does something and I get hurt or someone else gets hurt, how many of us just think, well, they must have done it on purpose? There must have been ill intent. Going all the way back to Leviticus, it teaches us, you know what? You might have done something wrong, and there might not have been any ill intent. That's the first thing you might need to hear today. Someone here, I think, just might need to hear that. The second thing, and this is just as important, even if you didn't know it was wrong, you still got to make it right. You might not have known it was wrong. You still got to own it. You still got to say, oh, I got to take responsibility for it. I didn't know. I didn't know at the time, but I know now. And so I'm going to take responsibility for it. I'm going to say, no, like I need to own this and I need to do something about it. 
One of the sin guilt offering teaches us is this idea that when we miss the mark, it will cost someone. That a price has to be paid. There's been a lot of different theories around animal sacrifices um, from like a sociological perspective, like not necessarily a theological one. One of the one of the common explanations, because animal sacrifice is actually is, is found in many, many pr- primitive cultures, uh, not just Israel, but variety of primitive cultures in different continents. Like, and so the question becomes, why are all these people offering animals as sacrifices? And one of the theories is this idea that uh, humans are bent towards violence, and so we'll create some controlled outlets for it. That's one of the sociological theories on why primitive people have animal sacrifices. So we'll, um, we'll curve some of the violence that humans tend to want to do by giving them some outlets that are controlled. It's similar theory maybe behind uh, eye for an eye. Um, you know, we, we want retribution, so we'll just control it and minimize it in a way that becomes less. So I'm not going to take two eyes for one eye, right? I'm not going to let this get out of control. I'm going to just minimize the damage that'll happen because we're bent towards violence. That's one theory. I don't think that's what's happening here. In um, the book that I was reading, Faith in uh, Food, was talking about this, and this was uh, the, the, the author, Norman uh, said that, that he doesn't think that's what's happening in a lot of these cultures because in the majority of primitive cultures that engage in animal sacrifices, including Israel, they are often offering animals that are essential to their livelihood. They're mostly what we call pastoral cultures, so they're shepherds and ranchers, and they're raising the animals from birth usually, caring for them, feeding them, these aren't animals that they're at war with. They're not, they're not like taking vengeance against wolves or other predators. They're raising animals and then offering them as a sacrifice. They're offering something that is essential to their survival. And they're giving it up to God or to the gods, depending on the culture. They're taking something that I need this to live. A shepherd or a rancher needs their cattle. And they're not only in the Israelites' tradition, in the Hebrew Bible, they're not only giving up something that is essential to their own survival, they're giving up the best of it. No blemishes. The best goat, the best sheep. See what I'm saying? There's something really deep here. When we wrong each other, and when we sin against God, when we do, it will cost us. It will cost us. The second offering in guilt, uh, besides the guilt sin offering, is what they call the peace or the fellowship. Um, the, the, the Hebrew word is um, similar to the word shalom, which means peace. And really what it's about is this idea that, okay, you're, you've been made right with God. Uh, the guilt offering makes you right with God. Um, you've, you've paid a price, so to speak. You've given up something you value, and you, you know, something, it's, now you're good. And so in right relationship with God, you engage in a, a peace offering, or what they call a fellowship offering, what it means to be in communion, to commune with God. Uh, there's other versions of this called a thanksgiving offering where you give it out of thanks to God. And it's, it's not to make anything right. Your relationship with God's already good to go. You're just celebrating your relationship with God and relationship with each other other. And I I really find this really interesting because in the fellowship offering, it's handled a little differently. Very similar. You can read it. It kind of lays out how to butcher and all of that sort of stuff. But then there's specific rules given around the fellowship offering in Leviticus 7. It it says this. Leviticus 7.15 says, the meat of their fellowship offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. They must leave none of it 
till morning. This is a really simple verse. You could glance over it, not read into it, but there's actually a couple of really significant things happening here. With the fellowship offering, they're offering an animal to God, but uh, it actually is turning into a feast. They're going to eat it. So it's a, it's a, it's a barbecue. Um, they're going to have fire roasted. I mean, it's, it's gonna, they're going to eat the whole, the whole animal. What's, this one was really interesting. They also offer rolls. They make these like bread, and they mix some with oil, and others, and this is earlier in chapter 7, they put some, have rolls with oil on top, and others oil mixed in, and they make all these rolls, and they offer a few of them on the fire as an offering, and the rest of them get added to the meal. And what you end, by the, by the time all of this is said and done, is you have all of this food. And then they give this very specific random rule. You can... You can eat it, everyone can eat it, but you have to eat it that day. And if anything is left the next day, you have to throw it away. You have to bur- not throw it away, you have to burn it up. Now, I'm going to unpack this for a second. Basically, you prepare some really great rolls, some made with oil, some not, and then you drain the blood. This is how the instructions go. You burn the fat, you offer some of the rolls to God as a thanksgiving and the rest. You set aside and you grill the meat to, you know, just perfection, and then you have to eat all the meat the same day it's offered. What does that sound like? Maybe a little bit like a Thanksgiving dinner, doesn't it? Meat and rolls. This uh, fellowship offering of Thanksgiving is kind of like the OG Thanksgiving. Like this is before the pilgrims or anything. Like this is, this is the original Thanksgiving feast. The only part that I see different is the part about eating it all. I've never been to a Thanksgiving feast where all the food was consumed the day it was prepared. Has anyone been to a Thanksgiving feast where all of the food was consumed the day it was prepared? Now, before you freak out, I don't think God is condoning uh, gluttony. There are two ways to eat an entire animal in one sitting. One would be, you know, similar to like a hot dog eating contest, and I don't think that's the idea here. Um, But the easier way and the healthier way to eat a a whole animal a whole turkey or a whole sheep or a whole goat, goat in one day is to invite more people to the dinner. You know, of all the offerings, the Thanksgiving is the only one that doesn't allow to offer pigeons. And in the Old Testament, whenever there was like a sin offering or a guilt offering, um, you could, if you couldn't afford a sheep, you could, you could offer a pigeon to be made right with God, which is a really equitable way to allow even the poorest among us to be able to afford an offering to God, but not with this one. In this one, you had to offer some kind of cattle. Why? Well, a pigeon, there wouldn't be enough meat to pass around or invite more people. Now, I don't think this is meant to exclude the poor from this kind of uh, offering. Instead, I think this is exactly why God insists them in eating it in one day, as if to say, you can't eat all this. You better go to the streets and invite your friends and your friends' friends and the poor and the homeless and everyone together, and we'll all eat some until it's gone. I mean, this is the picture that Jesus gives when he paints, uh, uh, when he tells a story of a banquet in one of his parables. He says this, Luke 14, 12 through 14. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, so you will be repaid. This goes on a little bit of what we talked about last week, doesn't it? I'm just going to pause there for a second. How many of you have invited someone over for dinner, and they've returned the favor, invited you over for dinner, or you invited someone out to drinks because you know they would invite you out to drinks? Jesus says, don't do that. 
It's like, ooh, this is like, we all have to offer a sin offering probably at this point because we've all, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but there's a good chance most of us have done this. Jesus goes on, he says, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The fellowship offerings this picture of you have this animal that you've cared for and you've raised and you offer it up to God and then God offers it back to you and then you invite other people to share in it. And if you want to understand what it means to engage in the Christian life, I just described it for you. You replace animal with something else. You take what you have, you offer it to God, God gives it back to you and the whole community gets to share in it. That's how this whole thing works. Look, think about Little Bottoms Free Store. <laughs> That's exactly how it works. The church, small groups. In fact, I would say anything worth doing probably follows this model. You have something and you give it to God and God gives it back to the community for the community to enjoy. This is how it works. Not because you need to be made right with God, but because you have already been made right with God and we can be a community together. There's two kinds of offerings in these two big categories. One that helps you be made right with God and one where you get to celebrate the fact that you've already been made right with God. I want to challenge you to think about that. Friends, living on the other side of the cross, grace has been poured out for us in ways that we could not even begin to comprehend. Through grace and faith, you've already been made right with God we come before God with offerings not because we need to earn God's approval anymore. Everything we offer is a fellowship offering, a thanksgiving offering, a, a way of saying, God, I'm already in. Let's have a party. I'm going to give it to you, and you're going to give it back to me, and we're going to share it with a community. I want to step back and just real quickly um, answer this really important question. What's the purpose of animal sacrifice? I I gave you a couple different categories, but I want to talk a little bit about the purpose. And we're not really told in Leviticus. We're not told why to do this. Uh, But we are told later. We are told the purpose of why they were offering animals. Not just animals, they would offer grain as well. They'd offer bread as well. And we're told much later. um, We don't find out until the time of the prophets, You see, the people of Israel had been doing this, and they hadn't been doing it the right way. And the prophets came and called them out and said, God is no longer interested in your sacrifices. God wants this. And he tells them what God wants. And so we can look back and apply that to the animal sacrifices and said, if they had been doing it properly, it would have produced the results that the prophets are asking for. Hosea 6, 6 says it like this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Isaiah 1, 12 through 17 goes on a little bit further. When you come to appear before me, God says, who asks this from your hand? Trampling my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile, God says. Incense is an abomination to me. Incense was another thing they did in the temple. New moon and Sabbath callings of convocation, another Old Testament celebration. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. 
Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And then he tells them what they want, God wants him to do instead. Verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. And plead for the widow. The question we have to ask ourselves is how was animal sacrifice meant to teach us justice and kindness? And the answer is really simple. At that time, animals that they were offering were their greatest possessions, an extension of their livelihood, and God invited them to give them up for the greater good. That's how we learn to be kind. In fact, if we were doing that, if we were giving up what we have for the greater good, would there be orphans who are struggling? Would there be widows who are hurt? Would there be people who are oppressed? If we really understood the principle of offering what I have, the best of what I have to God and to God's purposes, would there be? The prophets say, no, there wouldn't be. If you were doing this right, there wouldn't be people who are suffering the way that they are. But because you're not, because it's all about religion and it's all about earning a right place with God, you've, you've missed the whole point. And so now all these people are suffering and, and, and your religion isn't doing anything. James says that true religion is caring for orphans and widows. The book of James in the New Testament. Here's the thing about food. I'm going to end with this. The band can come up and get ready. Here's the thing about food. It's a very simple thing, and it's, it's essential to understanding why uh, Old Testament was uh, living with this. And they understood it better than others. Um, I think this is really profound, but uh, really simple. If you don't eat, you will die. True or false, right? That's true. If you don't eat, you will die. And here's the other thing. In order to eat, something else has to die. And even if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, which God bless you, um, you're still living off of the life of something else, the fruit of, of, of something that is given. And, 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 the, and the, the, the dirt that it grows out of, I mean, it's, a, it's as Lion King would describe, what, the circle of life? I won't sing it for you. But the story of food in the Old Testament and in life itself is all about how in order for me to live, someone else has to give of their life. Whether it be an animal or my parents and their time and their energy. You talk about having kids and your hair turns gray. You're giving of your life. In order for me to live, others have to give their life. In order for you to live, I have to give of myself. And we are invited into this relationship. That's how this teaches us kindness and justice. Because we are invited into a, a community where we give of ourselves and others give of themselves. Ultimately leading us to the person of Jesus Christ. Talk about a story of someone giving up their life. It's interesting because it's almost like a fellowship offering, isn't it? Except for Jesus made it vegan um, by offering bread and juice. Jesus invites his friends together to eat. He says, let's get together and let's eat as a, as a picture of what it means to be together and to be a community and for us all to have something to offer. And then the next day, he's hanging on a cross a guilt, sin offering where he takes on all the sins of the world. The night before, he took the bread and he offered his disciples and he said, take ye, this is my body broken for you. And then he offered the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. So even to this day, even though we've left so much of the Old Testament behind, we sit here and we reflect on the way in which someone gave their life so that we could live 
And then we sit together and we eat in memory and celebration of that. Holy Spirit, fall on these gifts of bread and juice and make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. God, we give you thanks for the life that you offer, for the ways in which you speak to us. God, you gave us your life that we might live, that all creation might flourish. Help us to do the same. Help us see in our lives where we can invite others to share at our table, to share in our blessings, to share in the things that we value. Help us to surrender our most valuable for the greater good so we can in turn make a world where orphans are cared for and widows are cared for and where the oppressed are set free. We ask all this in Jesus' name, the one who showed us the way. Amen. Maybe stand for our closing song.